I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. With numerous audiophile earphones awards and nearly 200 audiobooks to her credit so far, Exie Sands is known for her ability to make an audiobook an intimate experience for her listeners. Interestingly, Sands didn't come to audiobooks through acting as most narrators do. She began her adult life as a visual artist. In 2008, she discovered a supportive audio community that encouraged recording. She worked with them for a few years before she was discovered. Exie has narrated novels for Alifair Burke, Kristen Higgins, Bethany Crandall, Lily King, Jamie Attenberg, B.A. Shapiro, Darby Kane, and I'm proud to say she was the voice behind my latest novel, Sissy Klein is Completely Normal. Welcome, Exie. Hello. It's nice to talk to you and everybody else who'll listen to this. You have so owned a space, not just in my life, but I know a lot of people who are huge Kristen Higgins fans and man, they not only love what you read for her, but then they go and look what else is actually doing. <laughs> what are you working on now? Can you tell us? I can. Yeah. I haven't even gotten to read most of them yet because they're all coming up fast and furious, but the little bits I have gotten to read, I'm very, yes, very excited. Us. So <laughs> the, the one that I just finished, of course, was, well, maybe we're not allowed to talk about that. Uh, there might be a Higgins coming out, but I won't say what it is yet because. Oh, a yeah. Higgins. A Kristen I know, Higgins. A Kristen Higgins, oh, but I will not oh. say anything then because okay. I don't know All if right. I won't say anything. So maybe, perhaps. Anything. I'll um, be looking. <laughs> <laughs> I got to work on The Paris Showroom by Juliet Blackwell, and I love her historical fiction. I have gotten to do all her other series, and I adore mm -hmm. them. And Oscar lives in my head and he is a full-on character in my mind and my heart now and I adore him and he of course can't be real because he's a shape-shifting gobgoyle but she also writes a whole line of historical fiction that's usually set in France somewhere states and France and in this case it was entirely in France and it was a little different than some of her others and it's a World War II story that is oh. told from my perspective which is the middle-aged mother's character who's being held in a I don't even know what to call it, uh, during World War II in France, in Paris, where people were kept secretly up in the attics and top floors of various apartment buildings and warehouses by the Nazis and used for manufacturing or to sort clothing or all kinds of horrible things, not remotely on scale with what happened in concentration camps. It was not always for um, persons of Jewish descent. It was also for Catholics or dissenters. And she's there as the child of a dissenter, essentially. And her daughter who is privileged and living with her grandparents who are sort of more in line with the Vichy French and had privileges during World War II. And that story and how that unfolds. And it was really powerful and interesting look at World War II. I got to work on that with Barbara Rosenblatt and Carlotta. And it was just, that was an amazing project. So I felt very privileged to get to do that. And I love working on Juliet's books. Um, I've gotten to work with her probably just about as long as I've gotten to work with Kristen Higgins. And they've both become dear friends. And I feel very, very privileged and honored by that. The ones that are coming up are The Widowmaker by Hannah Morrissey, and I get to work on that with Adam Werner. That just looks to be so much fun. That's the one that I got to do the audition and went, oh, I must have this because I need to read this before everybody else gets to read it. I don't even care. <laughs> they don't even have to cast me. I just have to have the text. And then I get to be sort of a malevolent 
omniscient force, I think. <laughs> I'll get to know more when I actually get to read it in the Paul Bearers Club by Paul Tremblay. And so I'm very excited about that. There's a whole bunch of us on that and I feel honored to be included with them. That's exciting. And then the other one, Just Like Home by Sarah Gailey. And I've been working on their books. I've very fortunately gotten to do two of the previous ones and then a short series they did. It had such a great twist. It was wonderful called The Fisher of Bones. It was this tiny little podcast we did years ago and I just loved it. Had such a great time. And I loved doing the last two books. They were so challenging and I'm sure this one will be too. Magic for Liars was just the best best character of, you know, the non-magical sister of a very magical person who's a kind of PI and her trials and tribulations and dealing with not having magical powers in kind of a magical world, if you will. And then The Echo Wife, that was the one I did from Sarah last year, I think, maybe the year before. It's hard to say. When I do them and when they come out are different. Well, and I know you have some you can't talk about. So we, there are we some I can't that, talk about. Yes. We'll wait for surprises. Yeah, some I thought I could talk about and realized, ah, oh, it hasn't shown up on Audible yet. So they might not have said anything. Ah, okay. I'm seeing this more and more where you have, like, you did one that had the two women. A simple favorite. Did that with Andy Arndt. That, there's a movie version of that book, which yeah, is hilarious. Yeah. Oh, I loved Anna Kendrick in that movie. I got to be the evil villain. It was so great. Really How's awful. it going, like, when there's three or four of you? How does that work? Uh, usually in, you know, in the perfect world, you're talking to each other and we're not recording together. Of course, that doesn't happen, but Obviously, we're sending yeah. each other samples so that we kind of have an idea. We're not going to be able to sound like each other, but so that we aren't completely off in how we're handling something, especially important if there's accent work, doubly, doubly important if there's accent work listed in the book, but you're not going to do it in the audio because that happens too. So not usually, but sometimes it's better to not have the accent as present in the book. And you have to make sure that everybody's kind of on the same level with how much accent there's going to be, that kind of thing. So you're swapping samples back and forth of what people sound like and getting a feel for their rhythm and the tone of how they're handling it. That's when you're working by yourself. Usually if you're working with a director, then the director's kind of holding that all in their head and they know what the other person was doing. And I remember working with a director on the chicken sisters and, oh, yeah. and a great, a great book on so um, sisters, the difficult relationships with sisters. And most importantly to me, how they had no idea what the other person was really like and how much stress that caused because they just had their ideas of what they were and then they didn't allow the person to grow and change. And But in that book, because the director was the same, usually it's the same director for both people, they're able to kind of say, yeah, okay, so the way you're doing this isn't going to work with how they were doing it. We, we need to, let's work with that to find a different tone for these characters or Probably the most challenging one for the director, not me, yeah, I only had a little part, was we did Judy Bloom's Summer Sisters. Mm-hmm. And there was a bazillion people on that project and one director. And I was so thankful for him because I had such a small piece of that book, but my character was so present for everybody else's lives, even though my actual time in the book is small. And he was able to say, okay, yeah, I get why you're doing that, but that's not how this character like lives and breathes in the whole book, like as a whole. So let's try some other things to make her kind of come alive in a way that isn't just for herself, but is working with everybody else, how they're actually performing the characters, how she lives throughout all of their stories in a more holistic way. And hopefully that worked. People seemed to like the book and it was a very beloved book. So doing it in audio was both wonderful, but also stressful because it's something many people had read and had an idea in their mind of what they wanted. So how do you do this without your losing your voice? 
you do lose your voice sometimes. Uh, usually you try not to record too many hours a day. For anybody who hasn't done it, if you sat down and talked out loud for five hours <laughs> or six hours, it's, you know, your voice gets a little hoarse by the end of the day, right? So you have to protect your voice. If you are behaving yourself, you are hydrating and taking care of your voice and not doing stressful things with your voice, not going to rock concerts and screaming your head off before you're going to record, those kinds of things, and trying not to fatigue your voice. It gets challenging when you're up against a deadline and for whatever reason, you have a lot of work to get through to be able to meet that deadline. That's when you're more likely to damage yourself because you're going to work too many hours at a time. And that is definitely what you want to avoid. It's not great for the book and it's horrible for your voice. The other big boogeyman out there is, of course, laryngitis when you catch it from getting a cold. So honestly, wearing masks for two years has been a brilliant thing for all narrators because most of us didn't catch colds for like two years. Yay. It's great. It is the dreaded thing. That can take, that's your, your it job. Takes, I mean, it's your job yeah. and, you know, you catch it and then you can't do anything about it for the most part. Once you know it's about to happen, you are stuck and it takes weeks. It takes weeks. So when anyone who's had laryngitis, you know how it is when it first starts coming back. Most people can't tell that you had it, right? Because you're you're talking to them in small bits and maybe you sound a little more like Demi Moore for a short time, right? That's about it. <laughs> but if you are trying to work with your voice, it will completely change everything about your performance. And on the flip side of that, when I was recovering from laryngitis once, I was at the very tail end and I thought, okay, I have an audition to do. I'll do the audition. Um, I'll let them know it's going to sound a little different because I won't sound exactly like this later. But what I didn't realize is the laryngitis, it didn't just affect like, you know, how much fry or air was in my voice. It created these nuances I can't duplicate without having laryngitis. <laughs> it wasn't something I could intentionally do. I had to redesign the character because I got the job. And so I had to completely redesign it because I, it was months later that I got to do the book and I was completely healthy. And not only sounded different, but I couldn't recreate the emotional content that happened when those weird fluctuations in my voice happened. So we had to totally change how we were doing that to get at that authenticity a different way. So that was a very good lesson for me to don't do that. Just don't audition when you have laryngitis, unless it's a very straightforward third person narration or something. Laryngitis is the big bad guy. I'll bet. Say there's an author that hasn't worked with an audiobook narrator. What should they be thinking about before they begin that dialogue with their narrator? They should ask as many questions as they have so that they mm -hmm. feel comfortable with the process. One of the things that's great to me on um, the times when I get to talk to an author beforehand, I want to know about the characters from their perspective. And I've had authors say in very polite terms, well, it's all in the book. So what else do I have to need to tell you? And I'm like, but that's not true. I know it's not true. I read the book and you hope I get what you think, right? But I want to know who is this person to you? What do they feel? What do they seem like? And that can be so illustrative, especially with harder characters who are hard to like or who have activities and things that they're doing that don't outwardly make sense. It's so helpful to hear what is the author thinking? How do they feel about this person? How do they feel about the character? That's not always on the page directly. So um, being up for talking about accent work, the biggest thing I think for authors to know is the narrator is almost never going to sound like you here in your head. They can try. And if you said the character sounds exactly like this, well, they can certainly try to do that. That's usually more of a nightmare because we usually can't do exactly that. But opening themselves to open their ears and not hear the tone and the timbre 
but opening themselves to hearing the character come through because the chances are if it's you know regardless of the gender of the narrator if it doesn't match the gender of the person that they're voicing they're already going to sound different if the accent the narrator has doesn't match the natural accent that you've given the character whatever that is that's already going to sound different so trying to open yourself to hearing but is my character there do i hear their presence even if it doesn't sound exactly like i thought is my intent coming through so knowing that the sound will be different but hopefully the intent will all be there and I would imagine that's hard. It's hard to hear your words coming out of somebody else. The intonation is going to be different. That's the other thing probably to prepare for is that we may read a line and not be anything like what you were thinking when you wrote that line, because we're not talking to you about every line in the book, mm-hmm. obviously. And I think that that would be tough, I think, for authors. For me, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, what do you wish narrators knew before they started working on books? What do you wish they would do? What do you wish they knew? Both my experiences with you and my previous narrator with the first book were outstanding. I keep a running file while I'm writing mm-hmm. of words that might be problematic. Oh, yeah, that's words so helpful. That, oh my that gosh, are that's so helpful. <laughs> purposely misspelled, that are purposely mispronounced. In my first book, in the Texas Hill Country, there's a town called Bernie, and it's spelled B-O-E-R-N-E. Almost oh, like yeah, not born. a chance. I'd have no idea. And I thought, <laughs> have to ask you. Is, well, it's funny. Or look it up somewhere. Call the city clerk's office. That's my favorite. The woman that read The Husbands of hmm, Hugo, Taylor Jennings Reed's book, I thought she did a great job. There's a scene where she mentions the main character living in Hereford, Texas. Well, Hereford is about 30 minutes, hour, maybe from my hometown. Mm-hmm. And we pronounce it Hereford. Oh, yeah. That's one of the things that you have to know. The audiobook was outstanding. And I was just finishing my first book and I thought, uh uh-uh, uh, do them a favor, give mm-hmm. them the information. And oh, so that's gosh, what yes. I've been doing. I sent you a couple audio files of how I say yeah, it. I, yeah. Just because I had some funky pronunciations. What would you tell someone who's thinking, I might want to try becoming an audiobook narrator. What would you tell them? I started volunteering with LibriVox. They are very committed to public domain work and for everything to stay in the public domain, which I support philosophically. It's a little tricky now because people have been taking their recordings, which are free to everybody, and then packaging them and selling them, which is really frustrating. Mm -hmm. And as a professional, I can't. I mean, I'm going to get myself in trouble with my union and everything else if I have people taking work I did. And at least that's my perception. I would get in trouble and repackaging it and selling it. And I find that to be reprehensible because that's not the intent of LibriVox. However, I only say that as the reason why I'm not still volunteering there currently. But I find it incredibly valuable for people to be there. It's a great way to practice, to provide a wonderful service. Many people download and listen to LibriVox audio recordings. It's a very different experience for anybody who's used to listening to audiobooks, just just throwing that out there. Many of the books are done chapter by chapter with different people. It's an amazing way to sort of be in a really positive community that's really supportive, that can get some feedback, but mostly it's just super positive. And it's a wonderful way to figure out what do you think about sitting in a booth for an entire day by yourself working through this material? Because that's your life. So you got to love it. You got to absolutely love it. For some people, going to some acting classes is a great idea. I don't necessarily have an opinion on that because I didn't do that. So I think it all depends on where your natural talents are. This is one of those jobs that, like any creative endeavor, the only thing you cannot 
teach yourself out of or learn is raw talent. You have to have a thing. There has to be some kind of piece of spark or anything else that's in there. And that's the hardest part is, do you have that? Make some recordings and ask people, ask your friends what you think. The friends who will be honest with you. Let's be, let's be clear. The loving friends who will be politely and, and lovingly honest. A great thing to do is to see if there are any audiobook workshops in your area. Especially if you're in one of the larger metropolitan areas, it's totally possible. There's a couple of coaches that regularly move around the country doing audiobook workshops. That's how I got started in the technical side was Pat Fraley came out and partnered with my original coach, uh, Carrington McDuffie in Seattle and did a weekend workshop where this is what it was. We had to sit, we had to read, we were directed live given feedback. We had, you know, a panel of our peers and we were working through all that and being able to then ask that person, what do you think? Very honestly, do I have something here to work with? You know, you don't want to throw yourself at something if you don't have that one thing that you can't make up for. It's an incredibly rewarding thing to do. If you happen to be, once we're all back in person again, hopefully next year, if you happen to be in the New York area, that's usually where they do the Audio Publishers Association conference each year, the APAC conference. That's a great thing to go to, even if you just want to go get a lay of the land. Tons of workshops that talk about what happens, what is it like in the industry. But you got to love it. You got to love it. Read out loud to yourself and tape yourself and listen to yourself. What do you think? And get out of the way of yourself. Just get out of the way. Because you don't belong in the recording. This isn't about you. It isn't about how beautiful you sound or anything like that. It's about is whatever the author was intending, whatever you're feeling when you were reading this because you love this book by fill-in-the-blank author, is that getting translated into what you're listening and what you're hearing? Some people swear by listening to lots and lots of different audiobooks or narrators they really love and trying to kind of work backwards. And the other way, and this is what I would recommend, is... Finding a coach that's in your area, almost every place will have someone now with virtual. I don't even know why I'm saying you have to be in a specific place. <laughs> Everything is virtual now, just about available virtually. So yeah. you can find plenty of narrators um, as they've moved on in their careers. They offer and have just become exceptional coaches. There really is nothing that can take the place of one-on-one very loving, supportive, but honest coaching. Everybody has strengths and everybody has weaknesses. Everybody has tells. Everybody has lazy things they do to cheat. All of those things that you try to learn yourself out of, you get rid of those things. And someone who can give you an honest opinion of, do you have the one thing that you can't create that's just in you? Is this the creative line for you? Like, I cannot write I can't do it. I cannot. I had a teacher and he was not wrong. When I was an English major, we had to take poetry and we had to write a poem and it was torture. And I wrote, and he's like, do not become a poet. I'm like, there is no danger. We are all safe. So everybody has their thing. And sometimes the things we really wish we were great at, it's not where we're actually going to be able to express ourselves. But I hope for anybody who's hopeful out there that it is where you're supposed to be. So trying to find some kind of coaching to start that process especially if you've never, like me, had never had to go through the process of, I imagine this is true for writers too, where you've never had the process of someone taking in your creative output and then telling you what they think. What a horrifying (laughs) process is that? That is not very fun. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, (laughs) that is not, most of our world is not people telling us however gently how they feel about our art, but that's so imperative. That's so imperative to know if you're actually breaking through, you know, if what you're doing is working. And with the narrator, unlike the actual creator of the original content, we are in an interesting, weird position as translators. So 
we can't just be creating ourselves. Obviously, we are creators too, but we are working with something that exists that we don't have the freedom to change. So that is not our job. Our job is to offer it as it was offered and be as open to letting that come through as possible. So that's also a kind of a different thing. It is not the same as I get to create this out of whole cloth person. Like I'm just sitting here in my six by six foam room. Yes, I work in a padded room. This is, you know, the irony does not escape me. It really is, you know, padded. It's amazing that we get to work with who we get to work with. Thank you, XE. Thank you. To learn more, visit xesands.com. Please enjoy a clip from Sissy Klein is Completely Normal, narrated by XE Sands. A week later, Caleb flew to Maryland for work, leaving me solo while my moon and stars babysat Lark's three children. Much as I would have loved to have enjoyed one-on-one time with my daughter that weekend, I didn't begrudge Lark for asking her. After all she'd endured before moving back to Fredericksburg, Lark proved her strength when she bought a defunct winery, married a younger man, and became pregnant. Not necessarily in that order. Won't catch me throwing stones. So, while Meg babysat, I spent Friday evening with Lady Clarall, dyeing my grays. Just after I finished rinsing, Meg called my phone. Mom, I think I ate some bad grocery store sushi. Jamie's had to help me with the other kids because I can't stop going to the bathroom. Oh, Lord, I'll be right over. I'll text you the code to the gate. The braless, pantless woman in the bathroom mirror had no business leaving the house, but duty called. I slipped on the requisite clothes, towed into my sneakers, tacked my wet hair into a ponytail, and grabbed the Zofran pills from our last food poisoning incident before dashing out the door. I drove as fast as I dared to the winery and punched in the code Meg had sent me. The gate hummed open. I drove onto the winery property. Past the winemaking buildings, I took the narrow gravel road to the Giffords' home, surrounded by acres of grapevines. Lark's second grader, Jamie, answered the door, his sable eyes pinched with worry. Hi, Mrs. Dietrich. He wiped his chin. Are you here to help? That bad? I asked, stepping into the house. Real bad. Meg greeted me with a moan from the sofa. Sweat beaded on her pallid forehead. George is asleep upstairs. I'll check on Georgia. Here. I passed her the nausea medicine. Let this dissolve under your tongue. Upstairs, 14-month-old Georgia slept in her crib. Her gentle snore made me long to hold her. I walked downstairs, where six-year-old Charlie stood over Meg, patting her head. How about we let Meg sleep? Want to play a game in the kitchen? I asked. Charlie perked up. Shoots and ladders? Aww. Jamie was less enthused, but after some thought, he agreed. Okay, come on, Charlie. Charlie pulled the game box from a bookshelf in the living room and carried it into the kitchen. One spirited game later, Charlie raised his arms overhead in triumph. Jamie rolled his eyes. It's a kid game, Charlie. I'll be right back, I said. I checked on Meg. She was sleeping soundly, so I returned to the kitchen. Hi, Charlie said from his lone perch at the island. Where's your brother? Doesn't want to play anymore. With an elbow on the table, Charlie propped a hand on one of his full cheeks. Said it's a kid game. Well, you are kids, I winked at him. Doesn't like kid games. We can play. The doorbell rang and Charlie peeled out of the kitchen. Let an adult answer the door, I called, chasing after him. Who is it? 
Jamie asked. Someone who has the code to the main gate? I peered through a side window. Charlie shrugged. Does it look like a bad guy? Maybe. He slinked around the corner and Jamie pulled the door open. Jamie, I said, but it was too late. It's just Uncle Harlan, he said. Just Uncle Harlan, the man said in a voice I could have sworn belonged to Sam Elliott. When he stepped inside, I might have swooned a little. This is Mrs. Dietrich, Jamie said. She's our babysitter's mom. He crossed into the foyer. Taller than me, he had a solid build and smelled like pine trees and spice and maybe a hint of puppy breath. Nice to meet you. He reached out a hand and I offered mine. Something awakened in me when we touched. I pointed to his face. You have eyes. His jaw twitched. I do? I mean, you have lark's eyes. He cocked his head to the side. You too have those pretty blue... Uh-huh. His mouth crooked into an amused grin. I'm an idiot, a certified nonverbal idiot. Get it together already. You two have the same eyes, I said, unable to stop now. They're nice eyes. Nice eyes? Who says that? They belong to our dad, he said. Lark and I take turns borrowing them. <laughs> I chortled too loudly. Too late, I covered my mouth. Harlan jerked his head back like my laughing hurt his ears. Hope I didn't wake Georgia. Or Meg, Jamie added. Not to worry, kid, she's out for the count. Harlan took in the lay of the land. If you want to take your daughter home, I'll handle these mongrels. At least I think that's what he said. I was too distracted by that manly voice to hear things properly. Couldn't wake her if I tried. I gestured behind me. Brows raised, he put a hand on Jamie's shoulder. Stomach thing, I explained. Ew, he jerked back. Bug going around? She thinks it was grocery store sushi. Gotcha. Well, I hope you don't mind me hanging out here until my parents get home. They're flying back from New Mexico. They weren't expecting me and the house is locked. My therapist did say I should make new friends. Did Lark tell me she had a brother? I tapped Jamie's shoulder. Could you come with me for a sec? Jamie shrugged and followed me into the kitchen. I whispered, your uncle. Jamie waited. Did your mom know he was coming? He shrugged. I don't know. I bit my lip, searching for words that wouldn't scare the boy. Is he a nice man? Yeah. Jamie's face brightened. He's cool. He has a gun that can shoot a can from a mile away. You're not helping, kid. Does he have a lot of guns? Probably. He lives in the wilderness all by himself. Oh, joy, the Unabomber's in the house. Jamie went into a circuitous description of Uncle Harlan's nature experiences, catching fish, scaring away bears, and climbing trees. When the kid took a breath, I interrupted. Honey, what I'm asking is if your mom would be okay with him being here with us. She likes him? Jamie worked his mouth. She calls him her stinky brother. His shoulders rose. I don't think he really smells that bad, though. I laughed. Think she's kidding around? Probably. If you're enjoying the writing table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. 
Thanks so much for your support.